New Zealand immunisation rates are low by OECD standards. The vaccination levels for measles, for example, fall below those required for the global eradication of the disease. Next week, the government will respond to Parliament's Health Select Committee report recommendations. Philippa Tolley has been investigating why some parents don't immunise and what can be done to boost rates. New Zealand has improving rates of immunisation, but it still ranks below most other developed nations. The chairman of Parliament's Health Select Committee, Dr Paul Hutchison, has described the rates as a national disgrace. Even at 88% for two-year-olds, which has been achieved over the last few years, we don't know what the rates are for four-year-olds or 11-year-olds, and 88% isn't sufficient to get herd immunity for the majority of the infectious diseases that we're protecting for. In fact, we have to reach the target of 95%, and it becomes increasingly harder to achieve uh, coverage in the last 5-7%. While the latest figures are the highest ever recorded rates for under 2-year-olds, the 95% target needed to give the so-called herd immunity, protection to the community as a whole, isn't expected to be reached before next year not high enough to prevent outbreaks of illness such as measles. The child confirmed to have measles saw a mid-morning screening of the film Pirates of the Caribbean. Their one-fifth of all pupils are at home because of the measles, not because they have them, they don't, but because they're not vaccinated against them. New Zealand ranks 33rd out of 35 developed nations for measles vaccination rates. An infection diseases specialist in Wellington, Tim Blackmore, says measles can have serious and severe complications. Measles is a terrible disease. Um, it um, causes chronic lung disease, causes blindness, causes deafness. Um, a lot of um, children just have a rash and not much more. But um, the if you take um, overall groups of people, when measles was common, the amount of lung disease and blindness and so on from measles was, was very significant. Dr Blackmore says in addition, measles is, in his words, breathtakingly contagious. You only have to walk past the room of somebody with measles in it, so it can spread literally like wildfire. And um, the only thing that's protecting us against measles is vaccine-mediated immunity in people who are um, sort of under the age of 40 or so. So it's something that... um, the general programs for vaccination protect us against but we still have to manage each case of measles very very carefully because you only one person on average will infect 18 other people for measles and so that means if it gets into a university hostel or a hospital or a school it's literally a bushfire. And although vaccination rates for the youngest New Zealanders are on the rise, not much is known about the immunisation status of those young people in schools and universities who might be affected by a measles outbreak. The rates for those who have received the complete schedule of vaccinations, the completion rates, are not fully known for children over four. With a relative lack of information about older children, Dr Hutchison says it's difficult to know about total immunisation rates for all children. There were guesstimates over the last five, uh, ten years that maybe it's about 70%. We have the uh, anecdotal evidence that New Zealand has been probably one of the worst in the OECD and in fact lower than many of the undeveloped countries in the Pacific such as Samoa or even Tonga where there's a fairly autocratic view as that all children should be immunised there and they do a pretty good job to do it. 
The Ministry of Health says once targets are reached for two-year-olds, it may focus on improving immunisation coverage in older groups. The Health Committee heard that health professionals often point to a lack of knowledge now about diseases that are no longer as commonplace as they once were. So what sort of threat do those diseases, which are part of the immunisation schedule, still pose? A child with whooping cough or pertussis. A staff nurse at Wellington Hospital, Cathy Maloney, has cared for children severely ill with whooping cough. Yes, we have to nurse them in a very um, in isolation, um, and uh, we take uh, great precautions. Both we wear masks, and also the family, of course, need to be take precautions as well because we don't want to spread this further into the community. If a baby does have a non-breathing episode, then we often have to suction them, um, which we have a suction unit here. Uh, give them some oxygen via a mask and um, in some cases we also have to give um, what we call bagging by giving them oxygen via a facial mask until they start breathing again. She says a number of cases have come in over the past few years, mostly babies under six weeks of age, too young for the first immunisation shot. And they present to us um, usually quite sick and needing intensive nursing care while they're here, maybe for some weeks. Um, this involves um, uh, babies stopping breathing, needing oxygen, resuscitation sometimes. And the most extreme case that I can think of was a baby that was in for almost three weeks. Um, um, and, um, you know, it was a very, very distressing and um, traumatic time for everybody. When you go in onto a website and, and look at um, a child who's having one of those coughing fits or hear the audio, it really is a ghastly sound. I imagine for a small baby that would be really awful to watch. It is, but strangely enough, very small babies, they don't often cough or hoop, but they just stop breathing, basically. And you may them have a little tiny cough, and then they'll just go blue and stop breathing, and then you have to intervene and, and help them with their breathing. And this could happen several times in a day, many times in the day. They're monitored, plus sometimes we have to have a nurse in the room the whole time. Tim Blackmore says immunisation should probably be extended to other family members to protect very young children, as the vaccination can't prevent adults carrying the disease. The problem with whooping cough is the very little children who may get exposed to coughing teenagers or adults before they actually get a chance to be vaccinated. And of course if they don't have vaccination at all, that period can go on for a long time. But the real target for whooping cough is to really try and um, make sure that we protect the very small babies both by vaccinating themselves and actually vaccinating the people who will be in close contact with them. So the schedule has changed to try and um, account for that by have, having a dose in adolescence but it's um, something that we should be considering for pregnant women or women about to become pregnant and their grandparents and so on to, to do what we call cocoon immunisation to protect the very small babies who are most likely to uh, actually get really sick and even die from whooping cough. He says a number of children from his region who were too young for immunisation have already ended up at Starship Hospital in Auckland this year. It's thought 30% of adult coughs that last for more than three or four weeks are whooping cough. The Health Committee report speaks of apathy or a lack of understanding about why protective shots are needed. While diseases such as polio no longer blight the lives of New Zealanders as it's been eradicated here, other countries are not so lucky, as Dr Blackmore explains. If there are unimmunised groups, the, the resurgence of polio in parts of Africa and Asia 
Central Asia is very worrying and it was really thought that polio might have been eradicated by now, but it's not. And with the relative ease of travelling, that means such infections could be only a plane flight away. Other diseases are found in the environment and so are always present. Those most vulnerable to tetanus, for example, tend to be older members of the community who missed out on early vaccinations. Well, tetanus is um, the cause of locked jaw and can cause very agonising spasms. And I've, I've seen a number of cases of tetanus and it is a ter- truly horrible disease. And it's an interesting one because if you have a primary vaccine um, in childhood, then you're probably protected for the rest of your life and we give the boosters when people have injuries just to be absolutely on the safe side because it's such a terrible disease. But for those who have been born, um, who are older than 19, sorry, who are older than 65 or um, can't really remember, then they're actually quite vulnerable to tetanus and so the cases that we see in New Zealand are usually in older people now who probably didn't receive a proper um, program when they were young. So it's like a lot of things, it, it can be the worst and it can be just minor, but I've, I've looked after people who've had um, months of excruciating pain requiring big doses of morphine and all that sort of thing. It's not a, if anybody saw it, they would not have any hesitation in being vaccinated against it. While the report has made 30 recommendations for how New Zealand can improve its immunisation rates, there is no suggestion that shots be made compulsory. Even ardent supporters of vaccination schedules acknowledge about 5% of the population has strong objections to immunisation for a variety of reasons. Those objections include beliefs that it's wrong to introduce something foreign into a child's body, that there are too many inoculations in one injection, that children's bodies can't cope with a vaccination, or that immunisation sparks reactions, causing conditions such as eczema and in some cases asthma and other serious illnesses. Communicating public health messages in traditional media or on the internet and over social networks is also a factor, the report says, that needs to be addressed with a review of information for parents and health providers. This is sort of communication issues they're talking about. If you go onto a search engine and type in immunisation, what comes up, we've got the Ministry of Health immunisation site, uh, we've got immunisation advisory, But now I've just typed in YouTube, which has a whole range of posted video shorts, very popular with people. Type in vaccination. You get headlines like vaccinated by force, vaccination poisoning. And so this report is concerned about making sure that a wide range of reasonable and balanced information is out there. Dr Nikki Turner is the director of the Immunisation Advisory Centre at the University of Auckland, an organisation which aims to communicate the science behind giving vaccinations. She says the worrying messages about vaccines tend to be the ones that linger. I think it's the coincidental effect that's actually the hardest for us all to get our heads around, that if you vaccinate pretty well most children in the community, then for some of those children, some things will go wrong at the same time as you vaccinate. And you hear this with adults and flu, you know, somebody gave me the flu vaccine and the next day I got flu, therefore it's the vaccine. 
and, and you hear this issue all the time, you know, and, and the particularly sad ones are children who have cot deaths a few days after a vaccine or some terrible new condition that's arisen. We've got big international studies now and we can say, you know, the science shows there's no, no association. When it's your child, it's very hard not to blame it on the immunisation. And that, I think, is what makes the whole immunisation argument very difficult. I mean, I myself had a, have a child with a, a fairly significant congenital handicap, and we don't know what caused it. And you sit there and you look at the wall at night and you wonder, what did I do that could have made a difference? So I think if something does happen to a child after an immunisation, it's really very hard for us to hang on to the science. The main focus when it comes to immunisation tends to be on individuals, parents and the doctors and nurses providing health services. But an apparent poor focus on the bigger picture of public health is also listed as one of the reasons partly responsible for this country's poor tracking of childhood immunisation. Many of the recommendations are a question of processes and record keeping. Dr Hutchison says the report from his committee isn't asking for a great deal more money to be spent, but for the things already being done to be done better. Firstly, the district health boards must ensure that all newborn babies are enrolled with general practice, uh, practices. Secondly, that general practices are responsible for immunising the babies. Thirdly, that there is a very accurate uh, database in terms of our national immunisation register. And then fourthly, think of a whole range of innovative ideas to get that last 5 to 10% of children immunised so that we get up to our targets of 95%. The recommendations suggest the Ministry of Health should publish annual reviews of immunisation and targets for timely immunisation of babies in older age groups. There should also be a better collection of information about who has received their shots, as Dr Hutchison explains. Well, we haven't had an immunisation register to collate the data. Uh, there is an immunisation register now, and it's very, very important that it is collated appropriately. The cohort coming through will give us the data for four-year-olds, and then obviously um, in about seven years' time for 11-years-old. As well. For a developed country like New Zealand, why have we not had a register? Why have we been so poor with our, with our housekeeping? I think it's extraordinary in many respects because this is one of the most evidence-based ways to prevent childhood illness that we know of. I think it might be something to do with um, a bit of apathy uh, in some respects. We just haven't got on to it and uh, that's an indictment of, of, of us all. That National Immunisation Register started rolling out through district health boards in 2005, but the committee wants a review and eventually access for any health professional to the immunisation status of a child patient. While improvements have been made, there are privacy issues connected to the comprehensive electronic access to health information. But for this Wellington Hospital staff nurse, Cathy Maloney, the database has been a huge help. Now with the immunisation register we can just make a quick phone call and we know right away so we can do the opportunist immunisations. That's been a big breakthrough in the last few years, I think, in doing opportunist immunisations nationwide, really. Immunisation rates vary between different communities. Among the suggestions about how to reach hard-to-access families are recommendations for some sort of monetary encouragement to be considered. 
In Australia, vaccinations are part of school entry requirements and maternity and childcare benefits are suspended if parents do not immunise their children or register themselves as conscientious objectors. The report from New Zealand's Parliamentary Health Committee advocates strengthening requirements for parents to present immunisation information when the child starts preschool or school and for those changes to be made within a year. Dr Turner says achieving good rates protects everyone, especially those who have poorly functioning immune systems. So if there are too many unimmunised children around those particular children, they're at risk. So this is really focusing on ourselves as a community, not just focusing on our children as individuals, because we are reliant on protecting each other through what we call community immunity. The report's idea of possibly linking existing parental benefits to immunisation received an ambivalent reception from the Minister for Social Development, Paula Bennett, questioned as she made her way into Parliament. I mean, the Welfare Working Group looked at some of that sort of stuff where they look at parental responsibility and it's, uh, it's linked to benefits, and particularly for younger mothers, um, and it was in that. So we're sort of keeping an open mind on it, but it's not something that we've been progressing. We do put um, immunisation rates and that sort of thing into a whole lot of the programmes that we run. So we actually monitor the outcomes for, for um, programmes like Family Start, um, Early Start and other ones that are particularly home visiting programmes. And we base their success on one of those outcomes as um, immunisation rates. However, in Hamilton, one medical centre is offering payment to try to boost vaccination rates. The general manager for Radius Medical, Dr Ravan Najan, says it's Davies Corner Practice is offering a financial incentive for good reasons. I know that probably lots of people are out there who would um, be opposed to the concept of uh, paying people to have uh, vaccinations. And to those people, really all I want to say is that, look, I'm very sorry to have offended you. I don't mean to, I never started out wanting to offend uh, people who uh, didn't want their children vaccinated for personal or ethical reasons. That's not my intention at all. But I have a, um, I've got a problem where a large number of people in my community have chosen uh, not to vaccinate their children, not because of uh, an ethical or moral or uh, stand, but based upon simply not having resources enough to come to the doctor. One area where the payment system has been a great success is in the follow-up rounds, as the centre's practice nurse, Jane Purvin, explains. We're finding that because they know they do get the reward, they do come back for the follow-up immunisations, which has always been our, our goal to get these kids immunised so they don't suffer these childhood illnesses. She says the practice rates speak for themselves. Just in this area, our figures were quite low. Um, they were sitting at around about 74% for all kids immunised up to the age of two. And with the introduction of the, the reward scheme um, in the first three months, we saw it go from that figure up to 84. And now we're actually sitting at 93% of all these kids being immunised. So it's worked. Dr Rajan says there's been quite a lot of opposition to the idea of payments, with critics saying it's wrong to pay people to do what is seen as the right thing but he believes the $10 is enough to encourage parents without being seen as a bribe. Dr Rajan says the practice can't afford extra vehicles or nurses, but this way it can do something to improve take-up rates.
Those practice expenses are why the committee has also suggested looking into providing financial incentives to health providers to recognise the extra cost involved in reaching those most in need. But as Dr Rajan acknowledges, there are those fundamentally opposed to the idea of vaccinations. The Immunisation Awareness Society believes parents should make sure they have good information for three questions. Are the vaccinations necessary? Are they safe? And are they effective? The Health Select Committee stated that it believed immunisation was a highly effective strategy for the prevention of infectious disease throughout life. A spokesperson for the Awareness Society, Sue Claridge, says she put aside the arguments over the wisdom of vaccinating and told the committee that the New Zealand health dollar could be better spent. If you look at what our children are dying from, uh, spending millions of a very strapped Health, public health budget, millions more on raising vaccination levels from about the approximate 75% mark to the desired 95%. I don't believe when you look at the data, when you look at what our children are currently suffering from, what are the biggest health issues for our children, spending money on more vaccinations, spending money on raising complete what they refer to as completion rates, is not a, a cost-effective way. If we really want to improve the health of our children, the money should be spent elsewhere. The committee's chairman, Dr Paul Hutchison, says the recommendations are more focused on doing more of what the system already does well and do not require millions more in funding. But Sue Claridge believes the money going towards vaccination will be better spent on increasing breastfeeding rates and reducing smoking. We put the money into those two areas and along with improving general nutrition we would get a far better improvement in our children's health than by spending money on raising the current vaccination rates. Those objecting to immunisation are a vocal part of the debate, but in most cases caregivers who have not fully immunised their children have not made a deliberate choice. The Select Committee report speaks of the effect lower socioeconomic status has on vaccination rates. But research by the Ministry of Health has found that environmental factors such as transport, location or cost appear to have less of an influence than knowledge, understanding and confidence. Some adults are said to find the immunisation experience completely overwhelming. Immunisation rates among Māori are particularly low. 73% in Bay of Plenty and 77% in Northland compared with a national average of 88%. The research found many Māori families prefer vaccinations to be given at home. Sandra Hitchin is a nurse with Compass Health who works in East Porirua, travelling out of the surgery to provide immunisation in the community. I joined her and a colleague as they drove on a wet day to see a one-year-old due for some shots. Uh, my work predominantly involves immunisation, so I'm an outreach immunisation nurse and I work mostly in the Porirua area. And we will get names of babies, children who are overdue for their immunisations and we'll try and follow them up and see if there's been a problem and see if we can catch up their immunisations. We'll vaccinate in homes mostly but we also go to schools, daycare centres, kohanga reos, uh, learning institutions. And who are we going to see today? We're going to see a young baby, she's a young mum and she's not engaged with a general practice, she doesn't have a regular doctor, 
Plunkett were, con were concerned, so we got a referral from them, and um, that's who we're going to visit. The baby is living with her grandfather's partner. Gorgeous. Yeah, I've got three boys. Me too. <laughs> three boys and four grandchildren. Come and so to have the nurses come here to your house to do outreach rather than having to take her in, how important is that for you? How much does it help? Uh, immensely. It really does help immensely because I don't have a vehicle. <laughs> and I enjoy having um, people come in and, and chinwag about the babies. So it feels more comfortable for you to have them here to be able yeah. to talk about it rather than sit in the so, clinic? Yeah, most definitely. And I think the kids, well, Melissa sort of feels more at home more, you know, um, instead of that in a doctor's surgery. And so if the nurses weren't coming here today, what would be the chances that, that she would have got her immunisations on time? Uh, she would have. If she, was, if she was my baby, she would have had all of them done on time. Unfortunately, she's not. But she's getting, getting her shots now, so that's all good. I mean, she, she will cry, but it will only be for a short while. But you're quite happy for us to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Rather you than me. It's a white, it's a white. Sandra Hitchin says parents or caregivers can face a whole host of difficulties. Sometimes it's the embarrassment of owing money at the doctor. Even though the immunisation visit is free, if they own it, have a bill at the doctor they might not want to turn up sometimes just because they're late they kind of think oh I've missed the boat I can't sort of go in and get caught up it's it's too late now and they don't understand that actually it's never too late to come in and get caught up sometimes it might be they just haven't established a sort of a trusting relationship with their doctor or nurse uh, they maybe they had a bad experience or something happened there that they didn't like or they didn't feel they got listened to. She would like to see more outreach nurses and open clinics where people can just turn up without appointments and which operate outside work hours. She says for most families she helps, it's a question of life just getting in the way. Practically everybody that we see actually wants their children to be immunised and it's not that they actively decline, it's just that circumstances got in the way somehow and they just didn't get around to it. Every parent wants to do right by their child and actually they, 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 they're just grateful when we turn up and get it completed and sort out the problem for them. For Tim Blackmore immunisation is like insurance. You might not have a house fire or a car accident but would you take the risk? The absolute chances of having a really bad outcome from a vaccine preventable disease if you're not vaccinated is low but um, it's, it's whether you feel lucky and, uh, and the people who have had um, family members affected by vaccine preventable diseases um, and you ask them you know knowing what you know now would you have been would you have had the vaccination the answers almost without exception, always yes. Nikki Turner believes the need to protect the community through vaccinations will always exist. But there are diseases that will always be with us, like pneumococcal disease that causes meningitis and pneumonia. They're widespread in the community. So even if we get high coverage for the childhood population, we will still see these diseases. There's always tetanus around in the soil, so that we will never be able to eradicate tetanus. Um, 
pertussis, whooping cough diseases around in the whole community. So we can protect the younger children as much as we can, but we'll never be able to fully eradicate it. So we've done pretty well with these diseases, but many of them will always be with us. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Philippa Tolley. It was produced by Gail Woods, with technical production by William Saunders.